You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music for every major act topping the festival lineups there's an unknown artist headlining small town clubs and neighborhood garages the places i like to hang out i'm jim derogatis and i'm greg cott Today we go beyond the top 40 to play you our buried treasures. Plus, we'll hear the untold story of the patient zero of music piracy. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, uh, we get asked a lot by listeners of the show, how do we decide what to review? You know, and it's always this mix of we want to have a, a wide range of music for the show, we want to cover stuff that's making a lot of news, and then there are those records. I don't know about you, right? Mm-hmm. But any given moment, on my desktop, I have a running list of 20, 25 albums I've been excited about listening to. Uh, I've written about them for my WBEZ blog, and they're just under the radar, and we don't often get to review them. That's why we came up with Buried Treasures. I'm always excited about this show. Me too, Jim. But first, we've got some music news. Music piracy and digital file sharing first started making headlines back in the 90s and early 2000s, and it continues to fundamentally shape the way the music industry works. Now, at the time, it seemed like it was some unknowable, anonymous horde that was responsible for leaking albums for free on the Internet before their release in stores. But as it turns out, we can actually trace a huge part of the story back to a single individual with a face and a name. We're joined on the phone by Stephen Witt, author of the new book, How Music Got Free, which chronicles the birth of the MP3 and the rise of music piracy. Stephen, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your book tells the very human story of this guy who was working in a CD manufacturing plant in North Carolina. You call him the patient zero for the piracy epidemic that's going to become the major story in the music industry over the next two decades. How did you find Del Glover? I found Glover via a database of FBI prosecutions. And, and what this guy did was he worked in this compact disc manufacturing plant, as you say, in North Carolina. And over the course of about seven years, he smuggled out 2,000 albums. He had a big lunchbox, and he had a big belt buckle, which he would tuck the discs behind, or he would get his Confederates to do this. He leaked almost all of the major rap hits of the era, so stuff like Eminem, Kanye West, 50 Cent. Uh, he leaked it all. And this made him maybe like an Aaron Swartz or, or Edward Snowden of piracy, because almost everything that eventually appeared on the peer-to-peer networks, where most people were getting their music at the time, came through him. What was his motivation? Why did he want to steal this stuff? You know, it's a good question. I think primarily he was motivated by money. If you ask him why he did it, he says he did it to get access to this underground network of leaking. This was really a cabal. And so if you had valuable pre-release material, you could get access to other material, including the forms of media like television, video games, and movies. And so once he got that stuff, he would build these compact disc burning towers or DVD burning towers, rip 
dozens and hundreds of disks at a time and then sell them. Eventually, because he had access to this pre-release media, it made him the most successful bootlegger in the state. And he's doing this out of the trunk of his car, right? That's right. He was selling stuff out of the trunk of his car, and later he would deputize barbers in barbershops throughout the state to sell the stuff for him on consignment. I just love that detail, Stephen. Craig and I were living with this piracy plague, right? We're not able to get advanced music all throughout the 90s because, you know, it's critics that are leaking the album, right? And friends of ours in recording studios are being demonized, you know, you're leaking albums, right? It's not. It's a guy with a belt buckle. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is kind of hard to believe, but I didn't know that someone like Del Glover existed. When I started writing the book, I assumed I'd be writing about really kind of a crowdsourced phenomenon. The idea that one person was really responsible for most of it. It's extraordinary. I couldn't believe it either when I first found it. But the more I researched it, I found out it was true. And the RIAA eventually was like, yeah, there were just a few guys doing this. And that's the recording industry's trade group who tracks and goes after these guys. When they shut the group down finally in 2007, it did cause a dramatic pullback in the availability of leaked music on the Internet. So it really was just these guys. And I think when you're writing about the Internet, it's so easy to get lost in sort of data transfer rates and talking about technology or praising large corporations or however people write these sort of techno-optimistic or techno-pessimistic books, it's easy to forget that it's actually just real people doing this, right? The Internet is made up of people engaging in social activity online, and there's great stories. Well, it's interesting that you sort of pin it down to a handful of people who were doing the vast majority of this, because as you remember, the music industry was going after these kind of individuals like housewives and, uh, you know, poor college students and picking them off one by one and sending them threatening letters and threatening to take them to court, in some cases taking them to court for sharing, you know, a few hundred files, a few thousand files. I mean, this guy was doing it on a massive scale for a really long time. And it just came down to a basic security problem at one of their one of their record plants, one of their CD I plants. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, in the lawsuits, which I also write about, it was termed inside the industry Project Hubcap. And they intended it to be sort of like their lightning bolt that was going to change piracy forever and stop it. And instead, it just became one of the biggest public relations nightmares of all time. Their response to all of this is pretty clueless. I think they admit that now. In hindsight, what could the industry have done differently to maybe handle this situation in a more enlightened manner than they actually did? The idea for something, for service that, that resembles Spotify, which has essentially now curbed piracy, goes back to the 80s. And the music industry just always rejected it because they loved the profit margins they were enjoying from the compact disc. I think if someone had stood on a table at, you say, Universal Music Group in 1995 and said, okay, you know, it's time to look to the future. Let's start planning to distribute music as a streaming service from a distributed library now, I think a lot of the pain would have been avoided. Having said that, that was a very hard thing to see at the time. I mean, you really would have had to have a visionary, and that person would have sounded kind of crazy at the time, I think. Well, what became of Del Glover, um, Stephen? He was arrested in 2007. He was charged, I think, in 2009 and pleaded guilty to one count of uh, criminal conspiracy to commit copyright infringement. He went to jail for about three months. He got sentencing leniency for testifying against his co-conspirators. Now he's out. He's off probation. 
and he works in the Freightliner truck manufacturing facility installing the front plate grills on the truck. Uh, so, that's so wrong. Like, Apple needs to tap this guy to be their next CEO. <laughs> We're talking to Stephen Witt, the author of the new book, How Music Got Free. Stephen, let me ask you a philosophical question. Now, personally, as someone who has traded files and looked at the history of, of what they call piracy in the industry, what we would call sharing music, perhaps more benevolently, I mean, do you think people should pay for music? I'm not a big fan of should. I don't feel that what our generation did with piracy was necessarily that morally wrong. It didn't feel bad at the time. Let's put it that way. Not when CDs were eighteen ninety nine list. Well, sure, there was that. First of all, there was a gouging from the compact disc manufacturers. But also, you know, the music industry talks a lot about theft. And what theft is, is I take your CD. You don't have it anymore. But what if I just burned a copy of your CD and then left you with it, right? I haven't harmed you at all. The only person I've harmed, theoretically, is some third-party rights holder that's supposed to get paid when we do this. But if that person isn't around to enforce the limits of digital reproduction, then are we even committing a crime? I think that ethos ruled for a long time. And the record companies didn't like it, but it, you know that's the way people behaved. And, and they weren't being evil or anything. It's just, it just seemed natural that you would do this, right? So the morality of it is it's a very gray area, to be sure. And I think if you start to get into for-profit bootlegging where I take you know, your creative output and sell it, for myself at a profit, that's probably wrong, and that's what Del Glover did. But the sharing aspect of it has an almost utopian vision to it. And for people who participated in these networks, particularly the underground ones, you know, it felt actually like you were building a community. And if you look at what happened, actually, we have these smartphones today that are incredible pieces of technology, but the roots of that go back to Napster. You know, the reason Apple invented the iPod was because there were so many MP3 files out there floating around on people's computers, and people wanted to get them off. So you can say, yes, it's definitely the case that piracy hurts the musicians, but it also spurred an era of technological progress that's kind of amazing. Well, and half the battle for, or even more than that, 90% of the battle for an artist was exposure. Having somebody actually listen to my music. And maybe you could argue that a Kanye West isn't helped by peer-to-peer file sharing, but a brand new artist who finds a genuine fan on the internet who says, wow, this is incredible, and sends that file to 25 of our best friends who in turn send that file to their best friends because they really genuinely love it. In some ways, that's probably the best promotion model you can possibly create, a, a word-of-mouth model from somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in that music other than that they really love it. Look at someone like The Weeknd, who is a great artist. I love him. He started out making music just off a laptop, in, I think in a room in Toronto, mm-hmm. and distributing it for free on the Internet. Four years later, he's, he's headlining the Barclays Center. You know, it's a new era where this kind of stuff is possible, and I, I'm very excited by that. Stephen, have you gotten uh, hate mail or negative feedback from the RIAA types or from the FBI, you know, <laughs> that, it, that it took them, you know, 15 years to find the guy with the belt buckle and... You know, no one has ever talked to Del Glover before, and this is, I can't prove this, but I think part of the reason why is that he was just such an embarrassment for the major labels, who were constantly expressing concern in the press about leaking and piracy, and meanwhile, there's just one guy at their company that's doing all of it. <laughs> at uh, their company. Find he works for them, right. I mean, he so, works so, for them. And in he the end, he, yeah. he did less time in jail and paid less of a fine than many of these housewives and college kids. I know, it's crazy, right? He paid no fine. I think the court assessed a $100 judgment against him. Three months in jail. 
Yeah, Jamie Thomas got hit with, I think it was $222,000 for sharing 24 yeah. songs on Kazaa. I think we need a, uh, you know, a statue, both to the inventor of the MP3 and to Del Glover. You know, either either throw eggs at it or to just celebrate, you know, accomplishments. <laughs> great, he's got to wind up being two of the greatest accomplishments of the 21st century. I think so too. You know, and the funny thing is, none of this had been told before. That was the most amazing thing to me that no one, no one had really gone and talked to these guys. We've been talking with Stephen Witt, the author of the new book How Music Got Free. Thanks, Stephen, for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much, guys. I've always been a huge fan of the show. So the very next day when I punched in with my big lunchbox with help from my friend, I left that day with a lunchbox full of gear. I've never considered myself a thief, but GM wouldn't miss just one little piece, especially if I strung it out over several years. Professor, what's another word for pirate treasure? Them's my treasure, and I'm a burying them where no one will know where they're at but me. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. Time for one of our favorite segments of the year, Jim. Uh, we do this three or four times annually where we dig deep into our pile of CDs, MP3s, whatever you want to call it, whatever way you want to listen to it, stuff that we haven't been able to get to in the show, stuff that isn't necessarily mainstream news, but stuff that we really, really love and yeah. can't wait to get to. The first record I want to talk about as a buried treasure is a band called Someone Still Loves You, Boris Yeltsin. That's a great name. You know? Great name. We, we always see this band's name on festival bills or on, uh, you know, at the South by Southwest Music Conference, and it always jumps out because it is unique. They have been around for a long time. Mostly I focus on bands that are brand new when I think about buried treasures, you know, bands that are just starting out of the gate. But I always like to sort of mention one or two bands uh, during the course of a year when we're doing our buried treasures that have been around for a while, sort of been right under our noses, but have generally been ignored for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case here, the band's name gets far more attention than its music. But I think especially on their most recent album, it's time for people to start paying attention to the musical part of this band's legacy as well. The new record is called The High Country. And this is from a band that originated out of Springfield, Missouri. Three teenagers who started the band in high school. Lead guitarist Will Nauer, drummer Philip Dickey, and bassist Tom Embry. Embry has rejoined the band for this record. So basically that original trio is back together again, and they sound re-energized on this record. I think their previous recordings, directly prior to this record, their fifth studio album, sounded a little bit laid back, a little bit twee, got that twee terminology thrown at them, a little bit cutesy pie, you know, with the pop sort of (laughs) superseding the rock. In this case... They really ramp up the energy level and the intensity of of the performances. It's much more of a balance between the pop and the rock. You can hear it in this track in particular. This is a track called Step Brother City from the new Someone Still Loves You Boris Yeltsin record, The High Country, on Sound Opinions. Summer 
Step Brother City by Someone Still Loves You, Boris Yeltsin, Greg Cott's first buried treasure pick. I'll play my first musical buried treasure after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are running down some of our buried treasures, some of those under-the-radar releases in recent months that we really love. Jim, what's your first pick? Greg, I'm going to go with the self-titled debut album by Viet Cong. It's a quartet from uh, Calgary in uh, Alberta, Canada. It came out in January on the Jag Jaguar label. Uh, uh, You know, you and I are both big fans of that label. Mm -hmm. They put out a lot of great music. I first had my interest peak. They were on the pitchfork. Bill, I was wondering who this band was. I hadn't heard of them. Our producer, Jason Saldana, was a huge fan. And that's not a surprise because I think they have a lot in common with one of his all-time favorite bands, Wolf Parade. Mm -hmm. So there is this indie pop, much like the band you just played us, you know, a lot of melody but with a lot of experimentation art rock, noise rock, whatever you want to call it. There's some chaos happening in these songs, but there also is a lot of melody, a lot of hooks, and a kind of world-weary ennui in the lyrics, okay? Two of the members of this band came from a group that was a big buzz in the indie rock underground women. I think both of us were fans of of that group, and uh, this one I think is even better. Viet Cong is the name of the album, it's the name of the band. I'm going to play a song called Silhouettes on Sound Opinions.
Silhouettes by the Canadian band Viet Cong. Greg, what's your next buried treasure? Jim, I happened to catch some of Viet Cong's set uh, at the Pitchfork Music Festival just a few days ago, and I, I was very impressed with them as well. Uh, a nice band, and uh, I'm going to do a complete 180 from that because okay. this is a All very, right. very much a different sounding record. I want to focus in on a young singer-songwriter out of England, Flo Morrissey. She started writing her first really substantive music when she was 15, uh, five long years ago. And that turned out to be the first track on her debut album called Tomorrow Will Be Beautiful. This is the sound of that youthful optimism giving way into adult uncertainty. You know, you think you get more certain as an adult. In some ways, you don't. You become more skeptical, more anxious about what the future holds. And you can start to hear it in her voice here. And it is a beautiful, beautiful voice. From the album cover to the sound of the music, the reference points are pretty clear here. They predate Flo Morrissey's birth. I mean, she's 20 years old. She's talking about stuff that happened 20, 30 years before in terms of sound and the way she's approaching the music. I'm talking about California Laurel Canyon pop from the mm. from the early 70s, that singer-songwriter era, and also some heavy references to the British folk mo- movement of the late 60s and early 70s, artists like Anne Briggs. You can hear some of those qualities in her voice. I think if there's a downside to this recording, it's that Noah Jorgensen's production is a little heavy-handed. This is a guy that's worked with people like Jonah Newsom and Devendra Banhart in the past, and he sort of defined that freak folk movement yeah. you know, 10 years ago, the, the flourishing of the new folk scene. And and Flo Morrissey, some critics are lumping her in with that. I really think she's the next generation beyond that. And I think the production in some ways undercuts what she's trying to do. It's a little heavy-handed. Her songs are pretty good, pretty mature for such a young singer-songwriter, and they don't need a lot of production. I think there are moments on this record where the production and the songwriting work really well, hand-in-hand, and here's a great example of it. It's a song called Pages of Gold from Flo Morrissey's new record, Tomorrow Will Be Beautiful, on Sound Opinions.
Pages of Gold from Flo Morrissey, one of my buried treasures. The album is called Tomorrow Will Be Beautiful. What's next on your buried treasures list, Jim? Uh, Greg, I'm going to turn it up. I'm going to turn it up to way past 11 and give uh, give something with, that's completely different. You and I are both big fans of stoner rock, doom, some people call it, that heavy, psychedelic metal sound, but that has a little more brains. It's got as much independent underground rock consciousness as classic old-school metal. Now, when a musician and producer says, I am setting out to make the perfect mix of Monster Magnet, Hawkwind, and Fu Manchu. (laughs) You know, you're laughing, right? Because that's quite a boast, right? If you don't know those names, that won't make any sense to you. I'll explain it. Uh, If you do know those names, you're like, what? What? Mm -hmm. How can you do that? What Gabriel Fiore, a young uh, producer, musician, band leader from Rome in Italy, said, I want to make psychedelic, lysergic storms of heavy space rock. And you know I'm down with that, okay? I don't know much more about the band called Black Rainbows other than those boasts and that they actually fulfill them on this new album that's called Hawk Dope. All right? So this is stupid rock, spelled S-T-O-O-P-I-D. But by that, I mean brilliant. It's good Mm. stupid. It's great. It's funny. It's a cartoon comic book come to life in a basement filled with clouds of pot smoke and a black light. Okay? You know, and you're just listening on the headphones as far up as the volume will go. It's all going to make sense as soon as I play this track. The Prophet by the band Black Rainbows from Rome on Sound Opinions.
Yeah, <laughs> I needed some of that. That is The Prophet by Black Rainbows on Sound Opinions, one of my musical buried treasures. If you want to share your own buried treasure on the air or comment on anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back with our final Undiscovered Picks in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Diragatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. We are counting down some recently unearthed musical buried treasures. We've got two more each. Greg, what do you got for us? Jim, I'm going to go to Baltimore, which is a, uh, a, a city that has produced a lot of notable bands in recent years, uh, starting out with maybe Animal Collective, and you've got Future Islands and Beach House making a lot of noise in, in recent years. Now here comes another band out of Baltimore, and a good one, Wild Honey. Despite all this great music coming out of Baltimore, you know, I talked to the uh, one of the songwriters in the band, Joe Trainer, the guitar player, and he said we saw a void in what was happening here. You know, nobody was really playing pop music, and I think he brings it back down to the songwriting, much in the way that uh, someone still loves you, Boris Yeltsin, is really talking about the the beauty of a really melodic two, three-minute pop song. You're really hung up on Boris. Yeah. (laughs) Wild Honey is doing a similar kind of thing with their sound, and it is a very different sound from what Boris is doing or what any of the other bands that we've played so far on the show are doing. Uh, Some people would call it shoegaze, and and I sort of raised that term with them, that yes, they are familiar with it, but they really weren't part of that generation of UK bands that came out in the early 1990s. They were... They came of age after, long after that, uh, obviously, in, in, in Baltimore. And they've, they've developed their own sound based on songs. The foot pedals come second, you know. It's not about the sound. It's about those songs at the core of it. You're going to hear uh, some of those influences on this record. Coed Quintet from Baltimore, Wild Honey. Here's a song called 17 on Sound Opinions.
Wild Honey with a song called 17 from their debut album, Sleep Through It, on Sound Opinions. Jim, you've got another Buried Treasures pick for us. What's it going to be? I might as well stay on the shoegaze tip, uh, Greg, since you took us there. Flying Saucer Attack was not quite shoegazer in that early 90s movement and not quite post-rock like bands from Chicago, uh, including Tortoise. They were somewhere in the middle. It was a bedroom recording auteur, David Pierce, who uh, in Bristol, England in 92 started making these incredible records with his then-girlfriend, Rachel Brooke. There was a long series of these recordings in the 90s that got a lot of attention, along with bands like Le Bradford and artists like Jim O'Rourke, with whom uh, Pierce collaborated to some degree. It sounded like ambient synthesizer rock, but in fact, Pierce is a guitar virtuoso, and almost everything on the records, except for uh, Rachel uh, Brooks' vocals, were, were guitars that were altered significantly with distortions and delays and tape effects. Really incredible stuff. His first masterpiece, I'd say, was a record called Further in 1995 that came out actually on the Chicago Drag City label. He always called his music rural psychedelia. So there was this organic but also electronic feel. Now, for the first time in 15 years, right, you always wonder, what is a guy like David Pierce doing mm. for a decade and a half? You know, is he working like, you know, at the Jiffy Mart or what? You know, what's what has he done, right? Well, he's been making music. We have a record called Instrumentals 2015 coming out on the influential indie label Domino, and uh, he hasn't lost a step. He has lost Rachel Brooks' vocals. So it's all instrumental music now. Everything you hear, whether it sounds like the church organ or whether it sounds like the ocean, is pretty much his guitar, and that's one of the amazing things about his music. This is Instrumental 3, no song titles, just numbers, from Flying Saucer Attack, a.k.a. David Pierce, on Sound Opinions.
Instrumental 3 by Flying Saucer Attack from the record Instrumentals 2015. Greg, you've got one last buried treasure. Yes, Jim, thanks for playing Flying Saucer Attack. Great band. Uh, been a fan of theirs since uh, going back to the 90s. Got some Way of their back. stuff on vinyl. I've yeah. interviewed Pierce. You notice I didn't even mention Eno. Oh! oh they're, ding! It, it's very <laughs> it's a double Eno. ding on that it's one. It's very Eno-esque. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jim, my last pick is uh, going to be an artist who dubs himself Fantastic Negrito. He has got an interesting story in that he grew up in an Orthodox Muslim household in rural Massachusetts. By age 20, he taught himself to play all of these instruments and signed a multi-million dollar deal with Interscope Records in the 90s. They, they, they saw so much potential in him as a solo artist. But then near tragedy struck. He got in a uh, car accident that resulted in a three-week coma. And when he pulled out of that, he basically retreated from the music industry for, for a number of years and sort of reinvented himself while he was away, you know, rethought everything. How am I going to present myself? How am I going to present my music? He dubbed himself Fantastic Degrito, which he calls a celebration of blackness, of, of the culture that he grew up in. And the kind of music he wanted to play was very inspired by rural blues combining with contemporary hip-hop textures, you know, the electronic loops and, and sound effects that you would hear on a contemporary hip-hop record. So combining the modern with the ancient was his idea. Now, he came out with an EP late last year. He's reconfigured that EP yet again with a couple of new tracks, and I'm going to play one of those brand-new tracks that he cut for this EP, self-titled. It's called Lost in a Crowd from Fantastic Negrito on Sound Opinion.
fantastic Negrito with a track from Lost in a Crowd from his recently released EP on Sound Opinions. Jim, you've got one final pick. What's it going to be? Greg, you were talking earlier about the uh, indie world's fascination of late with Laurel Canyon singer-songwriters Fleetwood Mac, early 70s, right? That whole California trip. I'm going to play a band that puts a unique spin on that. They are called Sandwiches, and they're part of that San Francisco Bay Area garage rock scene, I think led by the OCs, probably best known. So this is that early 70s singer-songwriter Laurel Canyon Fleetwood Mac thing mixed in with a little bit of a 60s girl group kind of attitude and the the, the timeless, world-weary folk singer-songwriter sitting alone with a beret in, in the cabaret singing sad songs, right? Um, it's a little bit of everything. Three women who have made several great albums, three of them over the years. I like them all. Uh, I've gone back because I didn't really become familiar with them until this new record, Our Toast. And wouldn't you know it, Greg, Sandwiches is now breaking up. So this is a farewell album. You know, I should I should make clear my Jersey accent. It is Sand, W-I-T-C-H-E-S. Okay. So clearly there's some humor that these mm-hmm. women are playing with here. A lot of songs about heartbreak, but a lot of great attitude. And just really a, a winning mix of sounds from Heidi Alexander, Roxy Brodeur, and Grace Cooper. I love this record. Um, this is a song called Wicker Man Mambo, which I think pays tribute to the greatest, weirdest horror film of all time, Wicker Man, right? <laughs> yeah. ha- has usually been uh, cited by many heavy metal bands. It's interesting to hear that in this context. Sandwiches. The album's called Our Toast on Sound Opinions.
Sandwiches with Wicker Man Mambo from their final album, Our Toast. You can read about all of our buried treasures on soundopinions.org. That's it for this episode. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, you and I are going to become the rock doctors again, and we're going to help a new patient in need of some new music. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Emily Espinel. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Ben from Los Angeles. Just finished listening to your music in television episode, I had one big problem with that episode, and that's that it had to end. I wanted that discussion to keep going. Uh, you guys did a great job. One of the best episodes I've heard in a long time. I want to put in my vote for the best television show and its use of music, and that's, of course, Breaking Bad. What other show would get songs like Baby Blue and El Paso and many, many others into the public consciousness? They brought those songs to a whole new uh, group of fans, and... The show was brilliant in the way it did it. So that's my pick. Great job, you guys. Keep up the great work. Guess I got what I deserve. Kept you waiting there too long, my love. All that time without a word. Hello, my name's I'm calling from San Francisco. I loved your episode on television and music, and I was sure that you would mention something that had kind of blown my mind recently, which was Peaky Blinders, a series I found on Netflix. It had come recommended to me highly by some friends, but I was kind of appalled in the first episode by the very modern, gritty rock and roll music that was playing in this, like, post-World War One England crime drama. I have to say, it grew on me, and the theme song is a great Nick Cave song, Red Right Hand. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship and crack the first season integrates a ton of white stripes, and the second season seems to hinge on P.J. Harvey's existence. I think it's really brilliant, and they totally convinced me that modern music can serve a really great plot line in a period piece, basically. Thank you, guys. Bye.
Hey, Jim and Greg. It's Nick calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I just enjoyed your television and music show. My favorite use of music in television is the X-Files episode uh, called The Postmodern Prometheus, in which they use Cher's music. And um, I, I have always been cynical about Cher and just kind of wrote her off. But after watching that, I went back and realized how, how great she is. And they used three of her songs in that. The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, the great Walker Brothers song, as well as uh, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Walking in Memphis. And it's just an absolute joyous use of music and television. Hi, this is Alan in Chicago. Great segment on music in television on the show today. I'd like to suggest a show and song, Mad Men, and in particular, the way music was used in the series finale to end the whole thing. The use of the song, I'd like to teach the world to sing. The use of it at the very end was great, it was potent, it was revealing. The use of that song at that moment was a work of art in itself. Thanks. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions. Produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.